<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. As I mentioned in the Weekend Long Reads segment on Friday, Gary Marcus and Ernest Davis had an op-ed in the Times that has changed the way I think about the state of AI right now. They're both also the authors of a great new book, Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. There's a reason, they argue, that people remain fearful of AI. It hasn't earned our trust yet. In all sorts of ways that we get into in this episode, AI needs to change. So a lot of this episode is discussing the interesting ways that AI does need to evolve in order to take the state of the art to the next level. So as we uh, talked about off-air, um, I recommended your op-ed that was in the Times uh, this past week uh, on the on the weekend long-read suggestions. Um, basically, you start out by saying that AI has a trust problem, that we're relying on it more and more, but generally the public doesn't have a lot of confidence in it yet. And I thought that that was an interesting way to frame a discussion about AI skepticism. Um, so first of all, what I actually said just to be clear um, yeah. is I don't think that, um, or we, Ernie Davis and I, what we actually said, we didn't say that the public <laughs> doesn't trust it yet. We said that the AI doesn't warrant our confidence. It hasn't earned it yet. Earned it. Um, well, uh, go on, continue. So uh, to talk about why that is and why um, humans haven't been convinced by AI and why AI has yet to, to earn our trust. So I think humans sometimes are convinced by AI too soon. So a good case in point that cost somebody somebody's life is somebody trusted a Tesla to drive them. Um, the Tesla worked pretty well under ordinary circumstances, but the weakness of current AI is that it doesn't work that well when circumstances aren't um, ordinary. And so somebody was apparently watching Harry Potter while their Tesla drove them around, and the Tesla encountered a semi taking a left onto a highway, which is a pretty unusual thing. So I think what the um, uh, truck was doing was legal um, in that particular circumstance. So the, the, the car encountered something that was unusual, didn't know what to do with it. The person trusted the vehicle because they had used it probably for, I don't know, 20 or 50 hours, and it had been fine. Um, and we were kind of built to assume that if we see something that looks intelligent, that it really is intelligent. But current AI systems aren't that intelligent. They're not that good at dealing with unusual circumstances. And there actually been two people um, have died in Teslas that have run into tractor trailers. Um, so we sometimes give AI trust prematurely. A lot of people kind of treat AI as if it's magic. And if you actually work in the field, you realize that it's not magic at all. Um, that there are actually lots of limitations. The systems are not good at things that are outside the set of examples that they've been <coughs> um, trained on. Well, they not oh, good. Uh, I was going to say so, and, and let me just stipulate that I'm a complete layman uh, when it comes to this stuff. But my sense of it and my skepticism around it is is like, okay, AI has we, we've proven that you, you give us a hundred thousand, give an AI a hundred thousand photos, it can maybe pick out a face out of that hundred thousand photos in a few seconds. 
Um, although there's <laughs> sometimes it's, it's not, uh, good at doing that as well. That, but that's a, another conversation. But, um, my point being that we've always understood that computers can do rote stuff quickly, faster than we can, you know, finding the square root of a large number. But what's missing is that, and you're talking about the, the self-driving cars as the example, um, AI hasn't hasn't demonstrated any judgment yet, right? Um, it's a, almost a funny question to ask. I, I think that's right. AI doesn't really have judgment. It can do decision making of certain sorts. So you know, a machine can decide all day long: is there more money in this account um, or less money? You know, do you do you have a um, <laughs> do you have a, a credit or, or debit? Um, so there's certain kind of simple decisions that some people might call judgments that machines can make, but they don't really have an understanding of the world. So they can't do the kind of judgments that we would expect a judge to do, where you would balance offsetting considerations that are kind of complex. There's no machine that can do that. Or even, or even, okay, using again the the, the Tesla example, um, you know, we're we're training these autonomous driving AIs to it's, it's just pattern matching. Is that a baby carriage? Is that semi switching lanes? So if it accumulates enough enough knowledge and enough examples, it should be fine 99% of the time. But if it encounters something it's never encountered before, at least as of this point, it can't intuit a solution to the problem on its own. That's right. In that sense, there's really not a lot of judgment. So the systems are basically working on examples that they have labels for. So they have seen something that looks like this scene before, and what worked before was to go left or was to go right or um, to slow down or whatever. But if you have a scene that isn't like the system has seen before, it doesn't really understand the basics of like what people are trying to accomplish when they're driving or you know, the semis might have different goals or they, they just don't really have any depth of understanding. Um, the way we put it in the book is that what we have right now is a technique called deep learning. And deep is really a misnomer. It's just, it's just a, a technical term in terms of the architecture of the underlying algorithm. But there's no, there's deep learning, but there's not deep understanding. There's no comprehension in these systems about what's actually happening. So they can memorize the statistics of the English language and make up streams of words that sound like English, but those words of English don't actually mean anything. They're not actually coherent um, because there's no understanding of what happens in a story, let's say, of, of you know one person doing something to another and there being a conflict and a tension and a tension being resolved. They don't have that level of comprehension that we would expect of like a high school student. Right, and that's another interesting point that you made. I don't remember if it was in this piece or the Wired one. That um, computers can't actually read uh, the, in the sense that we understand reading. Like again, we think they can because you know Google indexes the entire internet and can scan all the words and suss out relational context. But it's not actually reading these pages that it's putting into its index. It's not understanding what is written. And 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 like you said, even you know a, a four year old or five year old can can read far better and comprehend far better than any computer can right now. Exactly. So um, sometimes I, would, I like to distinguish between text processing, which is like matching keywords. That's what Google does. So you, know, you can find all the pages that have these words. You don't have to understand those pages. You just have to do some matching, some kind of basic pattern recognition. But to do what, um, let's say, my five-year-old does when she reads a story is to reconstruct in your mind what is happening and to be able to ask questions like, I wonder what would happen if the character did this. And current systems can't do that. So the point of the Wired piece, and we have a longer version of it in, in the book Rebooting AI, is to go through a single example 
um, which is reading a children's story by Laura Ingalls Wilder of, of Little House on the Prairie. Fame. And we just go through a few paragraphs of it. We show all the inferences that people have to make in order to understand what's going on, because most interesting writing doesn't spell out everything. It assumes you can figure things out. So if somebody reaches their back pocket for their wallet, you know that that's because the person realizes if the wallet's there, it will feel different than if the wallet is not. There's all this background knowledge we have as, as human beings, and we use it to parse the things that we're reading. And the machines don't have it. They don't really have a lot of knowledge about how the world works. And so the kind of comprehension that they get is really, really thin. And it's, it's maybe a mistake even to call it comprehension at all. So they can do some statistical matching, but they, they can't reconstruct in their mind um, what you might call a cognitive model of, of what's going on. And that greatly restricts their ability to do anything like reading. And people are like, oh, AI is you know, magic. It's here. It's going to take all our jobs. They can't even read. You know, we wrote this book because we think ultimately AI can succeed and will be able to do things like read the medical literature, which nobody can keep up with anymore, and invent new treatments and things like that. But to do that, we need to change how we're doing AI. Right. And let me let me uh, mention the, the book specifically, since we haven't so far. It's Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. Um, I get the sense, maybe, uh, maybe I'm being too harsh or putting words in your mouth, but I get the sense that maybe you feel like um, current technology is gone down a bit of a cul-de-sac because again you said it just there that you you want you want new approaches that are inspired by human cognition and psychology as opposed to these sort of like you know pattern matching as we're describing do you, do you feel that way that like maybe maybe either maybe cul-de-sac is too harsh so maybe it's just we've pushed what we can do I, as I far as we can go too harsh although i would use a different metaphor which is i would say that um, some folks like Jeff Hinton and Yashua Bengio and Jan LeCun have invented a better hammer than anybody's ever had before. It's a really great hammer. But it's tempting when you have a hammer to think that everything is a nail. And there are problems that are very well suited to this new technology of deep learning. So recognizing pictures. So, you know, I put in a picture of the Eiffel Tower. The system automatically identifies that it's the Eiffel Tower because other people have uploaded similar pictures. Deep learning is fantastic for that. But there are other kinds of things that people do that are not about classifying that this picture looks like something in this category or this syllable sounds like another syllable they've heard. Um, like language. So every sentence is different. You can't put things in categories of sentences that mean the same thing because every sentence is different and it's different in context and so forth. And for those kinds of problems, this particular hammer is not that useful. It probably actually plays a role or will play a role in the final way in which we put all this stuff together. But we need lots of tools. So um, the way we put it in the book is we need hybrid solutions that bring together the best of that approach to AI, which is very statistically driven, um, <coughs> very data driven, <coughs> excuse me, with classical AI, um, which has ways of representing knowledge and information and abstraction and so forth. So we actually need to bridge different traditions of AI that have been hostile to each other. Right now, the data-driven one is clearly dominant. It's getting better results. But the answers don't all lie there. Um, just because you have a better hammer doesn't mean you don't still need a screwdriver and a blueprint and a plane and a drill and so forth. And we need to invent these other tools, too. You just uh, you said something that, that this is entirely an aside, but the, the books that I've read on, on AI development and the history of, of the field is it does feel like that um, – 
you have all of these sort of warring camps. Like there's there's this discipline of doing it this way and this discipline of doing it that way, and either one at some point becomes more prominent over the others, and then and then years down the road it flip flops and things like that. Why am, am I right in intuiting that, or why does it seem like everybody you're either this type of AI or you're that type of AI? Why is it so siloed like that? Well, I think there's a history of grant money and and incivility. So you know. People early in the history of AI in the 40s and 50s devised these two different approaches. One was knowledge-based, and the other was data-based, um, or kind of statistically based. And they fought over grant money from the beginning. And people pretty stridently believed their own views. I think there's not been a lot of work to synthesize the views. And that's what we we're advocating. Um, but um, there, there's been a history of people defending their turf. This is true in the academy in general. It's not like... AI is the only place, but people right. in, a, in the academy, they have their ideas. They fight over resources like grant money or um, hiring people that do the same thing as them in their academic departments. Um, so we've seen similar battles in psychology or you know, anthropology departments are divided you know, between the physical anthropologists and the cultural anthropologists. It, it's a kind of similar tension. Um, and now there's a, lo- a lot of money at stake because you know, corporations are spending billions of dollars on AI, and people are defending their turf. It's, and it can be good for the individuals because they get some territory, they get some money, they get some recognition. It's not really good for the field. You know, ultimately, the right answer to AI has to be synthetic. It has to bring different things together because the problem it's trying to solve, intelligence, brings different things together. There's perceptual classification, but there's also language and there's attention and there's reasoning. And we're going to need all these things to work together. And that's not necessarily in the interest of the individual players at the moment, but it is in the interest of moving the field forward. How do you make a password that's strong enough so no one will guess it and impossible to forget and do it for a hundred different sites and make it so everyone in your company can do the same without ever needing to reset them? Sounds impossible unless you have 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. 1Password makes strong security easy for your people and gives you the visibility you need to take action when you need to. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. And you know that a single data breach can cost millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money. For more than a decade now, 1Password has been on every computer and every phone I've ever owned. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom slash ride for your growing business. That's two free weeks at onepasswordcom slash ride. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepasswordcom slash ride. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I'm wearing a Mack Weldon shirt today. It's hot and a bit sticky out, but as I took the kids to school, this morning, I felt breezy and cool. Mac Weldon is not flashy, just classic, always in style and made from the
the world's most comfortable performance materials. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes, but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys that want to look great without even trying. My favorite is the upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. The Silver Peak Polo. Wearing that now. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code BRIAN. That's M-A-C-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code B-R-I-A-N. So the, the solutions that you guys write about are essentially that, uh, synthesizing a, a hybrid approach that, that pulls from all the, all the different disciplines. Um, but also, um, you talk about like building in some sort of, uh, you know, basic background assumptions into these machines. Like you speak about um, that AI needs to understand time, space, and causality. Like what, what are you describing there when you say we need to move beyond like these basic frameworks of, of numbers and things like that to, to these other basic background understandings? Well, we give a, a simple illustration of this, which is if you ask whether George Washington owned a computer, a search engine can't figure that out. But, you know, unless there happens to be a web page that's actually given the answer, um, it's something you need to infer. So you can, it's not hard to infer. You can figure out, well, George Washington, you know, must have been alive in the 1700s and you could look it up and figure out exactly when he died. Um, and you, if you're human, you also know, um, when computers came out and you realize that's more like in the 1900s. And so, you know, there's just no way that the two could coincide. There's no way that George Washington could have owned a computer. But, an AI system doesn't know what it means to own a computer, doesn't know what it means to be alive, and so it can't do the temporal reasoning in order to analyze this. It doesn't really understand space, doesn't really understand causality. So, like, computers have to be manufactured. People had to discover how to make them. You know, an average human being knows a lot about a lot of different things, and they can use that in the course of reading or trying to understand how to solve a problem. And the current systems don't really have a way of incorporating that knowledge. I think these are fairly challenging problems, and <clears throat> part of the book is just trying to pinpoint the problems that need to be solved. And kind of part of the re- reason that we wrote the book is we want to inspire a generation of graduate students to go after the right problems. So we don't necessarily know the answers to all of them. And some of them, I think, are going to require a lot of coordinated effort. I've talked about having like a CERN for AI or something like that. Um, what we try to do is to at least say, here exactly is where the problem lies. Um, moving to, to a slightly different topic, one thing that has come up on the show a lot recently is sort of the the, the space race, as it were, uh, f- for AI research between the West and China. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us any sort of your your take on that. Like, um, there, there's all these fears that 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 China is is far ahead, that is pouring more money into it. How do how do you see that playing out at the moment? I don't think China is far ahead yet, but they are pouring a lot money. Um, the papers that are coming out of China, the academic papers are getting better and better. Um, and the U.S. is shooting itself in the foot in all kinds of ways, like um, restricting visas from, from foreigners, um, making it much less appealing for some of the best talent in the world to come here, which means some of it will go there. Um, and so I think that there's reason for the West to be worried, in part because of policy mistakes that the West is making right now. Um, and certainly, like, China has a lot of resources, and, and they see the value of doing this. The U.S. is finally starting to think about an AI policy, but, you know, it, it's a clear priority. 
uh, for China in a way that is just not um, a clear priority for the U.S. And then the U.S. has these um, very restrictive policies and so forth. Well, yeah, the the real Cassandras I've read uh, are, are worried about this notion that a really meaningful breakthrough in in AI, they fear whoever makes it would immediately be so far ahead that not only would it be like generationally ahead against other competing uh, nation states or whatever, but also that 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 breakthrough would allow them to essentially always hold back everyone else, like so that it's a zero sum game in AI. Do you, do you think that that would be true? Um, it actually makes me think of a great book called, I think, War Made New by Max Boot, who now writes columns for um, the Washington Post. Um, you know, the history of war and technology is that somebody does get a huge short-term advantage, but other people eventually get the technology. Um, I don't know what will happen in AI. I do think that there are some breakthroughs that could be made that could give people enormous advantage. Whether they can hold that advantage for long is, is not totally clear. You, know, you, you could have something where a company makes a, a big step forward and becomes a lasting um, kind of thing. But if, eventually other people are going to find out and, you know, patents aren't forever. And um, So, I mean, it, it depends partly on the time scale you're thinking about. So could somebody be <clears throat> far ahead for five years of everybody else? Definitely. Could somebody invent a technology that they keep secret for a hundred years that nobody else finds or, or come up with a technology that you know, nobody borrows, steals or replicates? For 100 years, I kind of doubt it. Um, is there any recent work, research, that um, you're really excited about that maybe uh, you feel like could be a huge breakthrough in the next five years, say? Um, there are some technical things that I think are good. So some, some trends that I think are good. One is that people are finally starting to take hybrid models seriously. So Josh Tannenbaum at MIT, for example, is doing some nice work there. It's not stuff that's going to immediately change the world, but it's pointing in the right direction. And it's good because it's overcoming this long history of people being in silos. And you have people like the leader, one of the leaders of deep learning, Jeff Hinton, saying we shouldn't even be looking at hybrid models. And it's good that the field is no longer being um, kind of cowed by, by leaders that I think are narrow-minded. Um, and then similarly, um, some people are looking at how to – put some of the basics of what a microprocessor does into a deep learning model. So original deep learning models, and this is actually not a particular form of a hybrid model, tradi traditional uh, deep learning models don't have anything that looks like computer programming operations, where you take something from a uh, memory location and you do some operation on it and you put it in some other place, which is basically a form of algebra. Um, that's how computer programming works, and deep learning hasn't had any of that. Some people are trying to build systems that include some of that in the context of a deep learning hybrid. And I think that that's a good trend. It's, again, it's kind of early days for that, but people didn't even want to touch that before. And I think there's a realization that you can't solve everything with massive amounts of data. You can solve chess and go that way, but you can't solve reading that way. And so there, there's a new openness, I think, just in the last year or so um, to trying these things. I, I wrote a paper in 2018 in January called Deep Learning uh, um, Critical Analysis, um, <clears throat> which people can find online and um, for free. And when I wrote that, I got a lot of flack. And I think everybody was kind of pro-deep learning, and they, they thought I was a heretic. And I think <clears throat> in the year and a half, things have changed, and people are a bit more open-minded. All right, final question. Um, I, I was at a 
conference this past weekend where it was a tech conference. Every every other startup was like, well, here's a new dating app that leverages AI to do X. Here's a new, we're a new company that uses machine learning to do whatever in oil and gas discovery. And it's like, you're like, is that really AI or do you just have a bigger database and a better algorithm? I'm, I'm just curious what your take is on almost the buzzwordification of AI and ML uh, for, for startups. Some of it's real and some of it isn't. And, um, you know, some of it's stuff that you could be doing with more simple statistical techniques like regression or simpler machine learning techniques like decision trees and so forth. Some of it's real. Probably most of it is not, but it's a little hard to say. Um, or, you know, how much of it depends on fancy techniques. And, you know, it's a little hard to say. What happens is right now, I think a lot of people think AI is just magic. And so if I say I have AI in my product, then it sounds like my product is magical. And the reality is AI does some things well and some not. It's just a set of techniques. And some of those techniques are better for some things than others. And it depends on the problem. So um, <clears throat> right now, if you have a massive amount of data and your situation that you're trying to analyze is very stable, it works pretty well. But if your situation is complicated enough, like driving, it doesn't work well enough. And it depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to recommend ads, the alternative is not having any kind of statistical analysis. Well, it's certainly better than that. If you were trying to build an elder care robot and it worked 95% of the time, wasn't perfect, that might not be so good, right? You know, 5% error in an elder care robot might be a dangerous thing. So it depends on the nature of the problem, how open-ended it is. The more open-ended, the less our current techniques are good at it, how much accuracy is required. So if you need just moderate accuracy, we might be able to get that now. So you can think like photo tagging. You have a lot of data if you're Google, and um, you don't have to be perfect for people to be pretty satisfied with it. So that's a good application. On the other hand, if you're doing medical diagnosis, the systems don't really know enough language to be able to read people's charts. Um, and they're not accurate enough, and so that's problematic. And so that's kind of you know, part of why Watson, I think, has, has not become the great medical tool that people originally imagined. Again, the book is Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. Uh, thank you so much, Gary. Terrific. Thanks for having me. <laughs>